Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard and this week we're going to ask whether Turkey is the new Russia on the geopolitical stage. Do we see Turkey increasingly playing along the Russian playbook? Is Turkey in Libya mirroring what Russia sought to do in Syria? Is Turkey weaponizing flows of migrants in the same way that Russia has weaponized flows of gas and used sanctions to put pressure on other countries within the European Union? I'm happy to welcome an all-star ECFR cast to discuss these questions with me. Asla Aydin Tashbash is ECFR's Turkey expert who's currently sitting in Istanbul. Niku Popescu is director of our Wider Europe program sitting in Paris. And Tarek Magrisi is ECFR's Libya expert. Thank you very much to all of you for joining. So why don't we start with the situation in Libya, Tarek? What's happened on the ground in Libya since the Berlin conference in January? And what role is Turkey playing in Libya? Well, when the Berlin conference took place, there was kind of hope and quiet expectation across Europe that this would actually lead the civil war to calm down, that all of the regional actors sponsoring players on the ground would stop their weapons flows. But kind of the opposite happened. The United Arab Emirates and no supporting General Haftar kind of just doubled down in a big way on weapons deliveries. Turkey didn't get the deal that they hoped for. And so, you know, in the words of President Erdogan, he said that he would teach Haftar a lesson for refusing to sign up to a ceasefire. And that lesson has been taught over the last few months. And it's essentially resulted in Haftar's assault on the capital of Libya, Tripoli, just being ended, largely by Turkish drones, which have just harassed him and his supply lines all over Western Libya, but also due to the uh, assistance that Turkish officers and strategists have given to Libyan ground forces to be able to push back. As we are recording, I think it's safe to say that Haftar's forces have been completely removed from Tripoli suburbs and are being pushed back to one last enclave that they control in Western Libya. And so now I think the stage is being set to reopen negotiations where Turkey might feel more comfortable now that they're in a position of strength over Haftar. But the thinking behind this was that Turkey could use its military intervention in Libya as a way of both gaining domestic political benefits by being a kind of leading player on the world stage, taking advantage of the the vacuum created by a lack of willingness of Western countries to be involved in it, and also to use this to advance its economic interest by being part of the future development of the Eastern Mediterranean gas terms. Is that right, Asla? That is right, Mark. Libya is not just about Libya. In fact, it's very much not about Libya only, at least. Here it is essentially the birth of a new Turkey. And we've been talking about it, the sort of resurgent, a more revisionist Turkey, the narrative since the failed coup attempt, the idea that Turkey needs to be militarily present, needs to have a military footprint outside of its borders in order to protect its existing territory, is now a very much of a dominant theme. You see Turkey controlling a strip in Syria and huge mobilization in north of Idlib, and now Libya. I call this Turkey's Zonderweg, the idea that Turkey needs to be present beyond its borders. You know, the, there is, of course, a neo-Ottomanist undertones in this, that it's almost destined to be a great player in a new age of great power competition. But there's also something else, which is the 
old and new rivalries in the Middle East and in Europe almost coalescing around this issue. You have in Eastern Mediterranean clear division, new fault lines with Greece, Cyprus, Egypt, UAE, and Israel on one side, of course. And Turkey sees what's happening in Libya as an extension of that. You know, the idea uh, that President Erdogan clearly has and has said it in almost so many words is that if we're not active in Libya, if we don't push back against what they see as a UAE-led project, then Turkey will be frozen out of any eastern Mediterranean in terms of its naval presence, in terms of energy resources and whatnot. The Turkish UAE animosity is real, and it's a real fault line. Now we're seeing spilled over into a bunch of conflicts in the region. But in Haftar, Erdogan sees a sissy and, and thinks that if, unless he can sort of push back Turkey will not have any presence in Eastern Mediterranean. But quickly, it's also about money, of course, in the sense that Turkey can see that there is a divided Europe, that Europe is not really, there's a vacuum, in fact, that Europeans have left. And, you know, if it can help the government in Tripoli push back against the Haftar regime, there will be compensation in terms of existing debt from uh, Gaddafi era. Turkish contractors are owed billions, roughly $18 billion and from previous contracts, but also that it can open up new revenue streams, both in terms of drilling and exploration in the offshore in Libya, or in terms of the division of hydrocarbon energy resources in East Met in general. So Niku, to what extent does this Turkish engagement in Libya remind you of the Russian engagement in Syria? Do you see Turkey copying some of the Russian methods? I think to an extent, but I think the problem here is much wider. First of all, the Turkish action in Libya is also a reflection of the fact that, especially in the last decade, the way to handle international interaction, if you want, especially in the Middle East, has been heavily militarized. Of course, it started with the U.S. military intervention in Iraq. It partly continued with the deployment of special troops from the U.S. and France in Syria. So you have a situation where if you want to be heard in a region where civil wars are raging, you need guns. You cannot only use diplomacy and money and political interventions. You also need to use military force. So I think this Turkish deployment is also largely inscribed in this logic of militarization of interactions in the Middle East and North Africa. But of course, I also think that there's a Russia angle because in in recent years, Russia has shown the way in a sense and has been setting a new trend and has been pushing the limits of what the West can swallow. And here it's not just about sending your military quite far from your border in a complete and direct challenge of Western interests, but this is done across several dimensions. This is done in the cyber domain. And I remember, for example, that almost two years ago, during the midterm elections uh, in the United States, there was a lot of talk that the most interventionist uh, external player trying to do computational propaganda in the US at the time was no longer Russia, but it was Iran. If you look at China in the last couple of months, this much more aggressive and vocal Chinese diplomatic style that now people call wolf warrior diplomacy is very reminiscent of Russian diplomacy in the last 10, 15 years. Everyone's becoming Russian. Well, in a sense, yes. Partly just in motion, this trend of challenging the West across multiple domains in the 
diplomatic domain, the cyber domain, and the military domain. And then whoever wants to piece off the West and whoever feels irritated by the West are adopting some of the methods that Russia has used. And again, another very important thing here is that they also look at the extent to which such behavior cost Russia much. And they learned that actually didn't cost Russia much. As we speak, Donald Trump invited Vladimir Putin to a G7. Several EU member states are advocating for a new reset in relations with Russia. So actually behaving aggressively against NATO and EU member states does not necessarily at the end has long-term diplomatic costs. That's what countries like Turkey, Iran, China, and many other are learning. So I think the topic of today we might be a topic that we'll be discussing quite regularly in this podcast and not just about Turkey, but about other states as well. Okay, but we are talking about Turkey now. And it'd be interesting, Asla, to to hear from you to what extent Turkey is is kind of self-consciously inspired by some of the successes that that Putin's had in Syria and in the other techniques that Niku described. Both in Syria and Libya, the idea that Russians are doing it and they get away with it and why not us was an important factor. The presence of Russian mercenaries, Wagner Group, in fact, Erdogan has brought this up in multiple of interviews, leading Turkey uh, over the last few years to establish its own proxy force of uh, made up of Syrian opposition. And Turkey at this point, I think, is funding and basically running a group called Syrian National Army of various opposition groups, an umbrella organization of 40,000, 50,000 armed men, and some of whom are now fighting in Libya. And uh, I think the idea that Russians are doing it and Europeans are turning a blind eye, UAE is sending drones, and why not us, was a significant element. In Turkey's case, it wasn't so much about doing something that is anti-Western. It is recognizing the vacuum that Europe has left. Europe and United States, I should say, in this case. And can you say a bit more about what the next steps in Libya are being? I mean, is it possible that we could see an Istanbul conference emerging to replace the Berlin conference for the future political negotiations around Libya in the same way that the Russians set up the Astana process to replace the Geneva process and to shut Western powers out of uh, Syria's political future? I think we're already seeing the first steps of that. You know, one interesting part of the conversation that was just happening is that we left out Turkey might be inspired by Russia, but they're also kind of copying the playbook in terms of how they're doing it and how they're maintaining this kind of veneer of respectability over what is an international intervention. But, you know, they received an invitation from the government in Tripoli. They voted on the invitation in the Turkish parliament. So for all intents and purposes, and whenever anybody calls them out on it, they say, well, you know, this is all perfectly legal by international law. And we are just responding to a government's request for security. But now we see what this looks like in terms of of shaping the peace as well as shaping the war. I think Europe, as always, is kind of two steps behind in, in the dance. And they're always trying to catch up to what Russia and Turkey are doing. So even the Berlin conference, which was held in the middle of January, you know, this was a process that was ongoing since September of 2019. But the conference itself, that final bit, was put together rather rapidly because Turkey and Russia had instigated a truce in Libya and Europeans were scared of being cut out and they wanted to capitalize on that. Now, once again, once Turkey has inspired these kind of developments on the battlefield, Russia has kind of put their foot down to ensure that Haftar doesn't completely collapse. Now we see noises from Lavrov and from the Turkish foreign minister that they're going to move back towards a ceasefire and all of a sudden the Berlin process is back on 
on track. These military to military talks that were supposed to be the next step of the Berlin process are happening once again. And so today, everything is staying within the framework of the Berlin conference. But I think that we can already see in kind of how Russia is sponsoring politicians in eastern Libya, the head of the parliament, and how Turkey is kind of pushing the government in Tripoli to be more assertive in its diplomacy, that we're looking at a new political deal that's probably going to be agreed upon between these two separate to the Europeans and separate to the UN process, that's the Berlin process in essence. So yeah, it seems that once again, Europe is two steps behind and we're looking at an Astana process in reverse, in the sense that this time it's going to be Turkey who is leading the dance and Russia that's following. And I think partially, you know, Operation Irene, this European response or follow-up to the Berlin conference, which was supposed to enforce the arms embargo, has played a part in this. You know, Turkey feel like they're being persecuted by Europe, uh, that Europe is actually silent with Haftar and the UAE on this and so they don't feel like they can trust them as negotiating partners. Can you talk a bit more, Tarek, about this Operation Irini, which is a, an EU mission which was launched in March to enforce the arms embargo in Libya and last week when the EU high rep Josep Borrell was briefing the UN Security Council. We talked about the added value that this operation has shown. But it's been one of these issues where Turkey sought to play divide and rule amongst Europeans. Can you talk a bit about that and what's happened with the Maltese position on this mission? Operation Irene was supposed to be the European follow-up to Berlin, but all it's really done is highlight the deep divisions within Europe that is stopping them from being effective or cohesive on Libya. So you, you had the Germans who wanted this to be a, a monitoring mission, something that could help to enforce the arms embargo by, in a detailed way, examining who is breaking the arms embargo and how, so that they can leverage existing processes to put soft pressure on these countries to stop violating the arms embargo. Whereas, you know, the countries that actively support Haftar, France, Greece and Cyprus, were all pushing for an enforcement operation, a naval deployment in the Mediterranean, and the full knowledge that Turkey Turkey supplies Libya by sea, whereas the UAE and Egypt supply Haftar by air and by land. So this would persecute Turkey and prevent Turkey from engaging in Libya whilst turning a blind eye to the UAE and to Egypt. And the government in Tripoli did kind of kick off about this. They sent a very angry letter to the Security Council. This was mentioned in a few speeches by the Turkish foreign minister. But then in the end, a couple of weeks ago, Malta kind of took everybody by surprise and said, you know what, we're going to veto the appropriation of funds for this mission. So, well, you know, if you want, you can put your boats in the sea, but they won't have any EU funding anymore. And, you know, in the weeks that have followed, we've seen a Maltese delegation visit Tripoli. Kind of the noise around that suggests that government in Tripoli kind of pushed by Turkey and animated by Turkey almost, told the Maltese that you have a problem with the migrants, a local problem, a PR problem. You're scared that uh, migrants will come from Western Libya to Malta. We can ensure that this won't happen if you will help us in stopping Operation Irene. And so once again, this is, you know, Turkey to a certain extent, but now also the Libyans who are playing off of European divisions. Uh, And it's just another example of how Europe's divisions weaken it as a foreign policy act. So, Nikki, do you think that there's some kind of parallels between the way that Turkey's weaponizing the flows of migrants with the way that Russia has, has tried to use energy and other kinds of things to divide and rule Europeans? There might. I'm not the best person to judge about Turkey's motivations and intentions. But what I can point to is that it actually didn't work very well for Russia. Russia has been much more active in trying to weaponize its gas flows 12, 15 years ago than it is now. 
What Russia did more or less after 2005 with weaponizing gas flows against Ukraine had pretty negative effect for Russian credibility uh, across the European Union. Since then, the European Union has been investing quite a lot in uh, diversifying its energy supplies. But also countries like Ukraine, Moldova and Belarus have been looking elsewhere. Ukraine is not buying any Russian gas directly today. So yes, Russia has weaponized gas flow, but it didn't work. That's also partly the reason why Russia needed to go to war with Ukraine, because it's economic levers and it's gas and energy levers and it's trade embargoes on Ukraine did not work in achieving Russian objectives in Ukraine. So at some point, Russia felt as if it needed to escalate that and, and use military power. So if I look at today, it's hard, of course, to predict how Turkey will behave around these migration flows issues. But usually such type of behavior did not necessarily lead to its desired effects. And the EU usually accelerates the development of policy responses to deal with such pressures and insulate itself from them. Asa, how do you see it? I mean, Erdogan's first port of call tends to be to threaten that migrants will come to Europe whenever anything happens at the moment. This is a new front on which this is happening. It's not Syrian migrants that are being weaponized, but ones from Libya, though probably not Libyans. It's obviously, Libya is a big transit point for other types of migration. But how is the debate within Turkey developing around that as a tool of power? I think there's a huge difference between Turkey and Russia on this issue and other issues in that Russia is essentially wanting to wipe out European influence in these theaters, whereas I think Turkey at the end of the day still wants to work with Europe and sees that European or US participation in these multilateral processes as a guarantee of its own play. And often Erdogan's way of attracting Europe's attention is... <laughs> sort of threatening and screaming and all of that, as we've seen in the refugee issue. But he wants to deal with the refugee issue. He wants to deal with Libya through processes in which Europeans are also at the table. Turkey does not want to be left alone in the room with Russia. That's very clear. Not in Syria, not in Libya, not elsewhere. And also, you can see the divisions in Europe. There is the Berlin process is something they supported. And yes, another Astana-like process for Libya, they would, but they'd want Germans, the Italians, and UN in that room. So I think that's the difference between Turkey and Russia. Russia, I don't really think they care so much about the multilateral aspect of these processes. What Turks want right now seems to be to push Haftar and his backers into uh, some sort of a power sharing deal. And they have achieved their military goals in the sense that they have prevented the fall of Tripoli and Haftar will not be able to control Libya. That's done, I think. And so now or within the next couple of weeks or months is going to be the some sort of a peace process. And I think that Turks also, of course, have other agendas. They want to isolate France a backer of Haftar. They want to out and isolate France uh, in some sense, use maybe various European member states to sow seeds of dissent with, on the Libya issue. But at the end of the day, they want Europeans to play a role in the resolution. Okay, well, we'll be coming back and looking at how these processes develop, I'm sure, many times in the future. But thanks a lot to all of you for fascinating discussion on this. We've got one thing left to do on this podcast, which is our bookshelf segment. Tarek, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? 
Well, what's on my desk actually in front of me for the last couple of weeks is a book called Libya's Fragmentation by Dr. Wolfram Lacker, who is, you know, a colleague and one of the few Libya experts who are around these days. It's, it's really valuable because there's such few academic works done on Libya since 2011. So for people like me who have been stuck in the weeds for the last 10 years, and even those who are just approaching Libya as a fresh topic, these kind of academic overviews are really refreshing and they give us new ways to look at and to approach the crisis that's before us. What about you, Asla? Well, first, uh, self-promotion. I'd love everyone to take a look at our recent brief on Libya and East Med. It covers Libya, also Cyprus, also sort of the various fault lines and battle lines in Eastern Mediterranean. It's a collective effort by our MENA team called Deep Sea Rivals, Europe, Turkey, and New Eastern Mediterranean Conflict Lines. It's an interactive and fun piece. But I am reading, other than this... <laughs> A book which may have come up in this podcast, John Barry's Great Influenza about the Spanish flu of 1918. It's just wonderful, one of the best books I've read this year and very depressing, but also, of course, the development of that pandemic and efforts to sort of curtail the damage is there are parallels to what's happening today from bureaucratic fight to the scientific struggles, basically. But I really recommend it. Great. And what about you, Niku? So one book I would recommend is called Free Byzantine Military Treatises. It's a compilation of free Byzantine strategy papers, if you want. One from the 6th century by an anonymous writer, and another one is more or less from the 970s, and it's called On Skirmishing. It's a very interesting book that reminds me a lot of what we're witnessing today, either in Syria or in Libya, with the conversation we just had. Another book I, I've just read is called The Hacker in the State by Ben Buchanan, which is, as you can imagine, about hacking and cybersecurity. And its subtitle is Cyber Attacks and the New Normal of Geopolitics. Fascinating. So if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do head straight to the platform that you've used to download it on and give us a five star rating and a nice review and let other people know about it on social media. But for now, from Asla Aydin Tashbash, Tarek Magrisi, Niku Babescu and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher of ECFR's podcast is Lucy Halpenthal and our editor is Gabriele Valadskaita. You will find links to all the publications that we mentioned on our website at www.ecfr.eu slash podcasts. Thank you very much, everyone. Mm-hmm.